Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. First of all, uh, Nick Russ, the chief executive of the BHA, is on the line following up yesterday's news that the country would enter a lockdown from Thursday this week and how that might affect British horse racing. Nick, morning. Good morning, Nick. And first things first, I think most people will have seen it, but for those who, who haven't or were away overnight or have just got back, uh, British racing will continue. That's the, that's the main headline. Yes, um, elite sports will continue. We're in the category with elite sports. Um, we were as confident as we could be that racing would be able to continue behind closed doors but of course as you saw yesterday there was a lot of shuffling around before the government eventually made its um, announcement um, we, it was due at five o'clock wasn't it and we got it at uh, sometime after half past six so you're never you're never sure until until the announcement was made but it's a relief and uh, it's it's testament to the the team effort in the sport of following you know some tough protocols and managing a lot of change to help ensure that we've run 500 events behind closed doors successfully without uh, without any evidence of transmission of the virus and you know the government's showing faith in in us um, and we can now show what an important role racing plays in our national national life over the next month will the restrictions have to be tightened again accordingly because of lockdown so will we have to go back to where we were in in early june we're still working there'll be a meeting tomorrow morning um of my executive team and then a subsequent meeting of the industry's COVID group just to um, work it all through because frankly we've still got arrangements that are different in Scotland and Wales but fundamentally you know our first assessment last night um, the, the only query outstanding is going to be around the participation of, of owners um, obviously we'd love to keep them coming but there have been some tough restrictions reimposed on hospitality so there's there's no guarantees on that um but in uh, we we're, we're going to fight hard for that but the, the main thing is to ensure um that we that we comply and that we keep racing going for the next month i i doubt that there will need to be substantial changes if any to the requirements on participants um during uh, this period uh, we, we already tightened things up on a few areas including the wearing of face coverings um, last week, and, I, and I, I think we'll be in reasonable shape on that. So I, I don't expect any substantial change to that side of things, and we'll clarify matters with government this week with regards to owners. Well, Nick, given that you're not allowed after Thursday to do anything that's non-essential, it would be very difficult for anybody who's an owner of a racehorse to classify going to see their horse running as essential, wouldn't it? 
Well, I think we've we made the case to bring back owners on the basis uh, originally on the basis that they were an essential part of the activity. But yeah. yes, the sentiment is the sentiment's very much around essential work, and, and therefore we will need to view it in that context. But you know, we're not making a decision on that until we've had further detail from government in the morning and further discussions. Yeah, what I was sort of saying was that I'm not sure that you'll need to make the decision because government might have already made that decision for it, you, really. It, it, it may do, though it hasn't, it hasn't you know, with, there's no prescriptive um, comment on that at this point. So during this period of lockdown then, does racing just wait until lockdown is over before it tries to push forward for this subject we've talked about for so long, getting spectators back as and when and, and that? Do you just wait no, or, or do you, or do you continue underneath to, to, to keep to keep nudging away at how restrictions may be relaxed in the medium term? No, we, we, we have to we have to keep going with it. Not you know not in public. There's not going to be a public campaign to bring it back at this at this point. That's that's not the way that we need to to deal with this, especially given the announcement that's just been made. But we have not stopped behind the scenes day by day, um, trying to pave the way, working with other sports as well. Um, trying to pave the way for the return of spectators and you know a massive issue is facing um, the sports sector and the racing sector in particular if we aren't able to bring spectators back as has been you know talked about at length uh, now we're not expecting to have pilots obviously back over the next uh, period before Christmas now um, but we have to pave the way towards pilots um, in, in January and February uh, and look to bring back um, spectators from the spring period onwards, if conditions allow it generally. So you know, we're, we're pro producing all the evidence of our behind-closed-doors events and the other experiences we've had with owners as well, uh, and we're working with other sports with their experience. Government entrusted us with a number of the original pilots, and we were the first major sport, really, to, to, to run events. Uh, and, you know, we, we still had between 200 and 400 people coming to race courses in those early days as well um, in the re return of racing. So we've shown that we can do it and we want to use that evidence to help government um, with, with a roadmap on this because it's no use su suddenly starting to consider it in March. We, we have to start the discussions now and so, uh, well, sorry, continue the discussions now yeah. um, uh, to, to, to pave the way for further pilots and the, and the return of spectators. Uh, has this, has this, can you give me any indication as to... Uh, how this little lockdown period, we hope it's a relatively short lockdown period of, say, a month, is that going to have another massive bearing on racing's finances or not really, do you think? Well, um, our, our um, colleagues in betting shops, of course, are going to be closed for a month. Um, that will have an impact on uh, media rights income to the sport, but also, of course, levy. Um, there's an estimate of around about £2.5 million, pounds, possibly more, um, from, from levy. Um, I don't know the figure for media rights, but you know when we were um, initially looking at the resumption of racing and the fixture list, we didn't expect betting shops to be open as quickly as they did open in the end, um, and we had to plan our finances accordingly. There's there's no doubt that um, you know 50% of racecourse income is from spectators, so we know that's not going to be there, um, and there's going to be a reduction um, in in activity from from betting related income. So. We, we have enough with, with the levy board support to be able to work the fixture list through with the minimum prize money values being protected for about 75% of the races, um, certainly up until Christmas, and we're looking to confirm the fixture list up until the, the first three or four months of the year on the same basis. So 
we're, we're hoping that we can manage to get through, but it does it does talk about it does talk to the tipping point of the return of um, spectators um, from spring next year as being absolutely vital. Are you in any way, Nick, just finally worried about the movement of large uh, quantities of stable staff around the country during this period and uh, and the look of that to the outside world? Well, I, I think it's one of the considerations that we will need to just check through with our uh, medical and political advisors uh, on, on Monday. Um, but there will still be um, people travelling for work where they yeah. can't work from home, you know, in those situations going around the country. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I accept that, obviously, that, um, you know, we have horses traveling two or 300 miles sometimes to race or quite often to race. And we will just need to look at that and make sure that, um, that, that we're comfortable with that continuing. But we've done it safely up to now. The protocols and checks and screening that's in place um, was designed, in effect, to manage that risk uh, when we returned, so I don't see why it wouldn't still be appropriate now. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiworld Dubai. Ross Ryan joins me. He's had a wonderful start to his career. He is still only 20. Tomorrow he will board a plane to head to Kentucky for his first ride in the Breeders' Cup on Devil Waller, the Dewhurst fourth, whom he rides for Ammo Racing, with whom he's formed a fantastic association this year. It's 200 winners and counting, runner-up uh, in the Apprentice Championship to Jason Watson a couple of seasons ago, and he hasn't really looked back. And it's great to have you with me, Ross. So thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. It has gone well. It's gone quickly. And I, I put it to you that it's sort of... It's gone seamlessly upwards, but nicely under the radar. So you haven't had too much of the too much of the spotlight. No, exactly. Um, I think it was more because it was second, you know, and Jason won it. You know, got the Roger Charlton job. Nicola was third, got the Jamie Osborne job. It kind of just I got taken away from the limelight a small bit. At the time, you know, I was only 18. I was kind of like, you know, what about me? But looking back, and I think it was brilliant. I was able to just form a lovely foundation and build my contacts slowly but surely, and I've built on every season since. You've got some lovely contacts as well. Let's talk about what's happening right now and very immediately. You're off to America to ride Devil Waller in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf. Your owner and your trainer could easily have gone for a big experienced American jockey, but they've, they've shown faith in you. How does it feel to be, to be taking up such a big opportunity? Oh, it's, it is incredible. It, it, it really is. And I think, I think that is the really good thing about having Kia as my boss. He you know, has said it to me on a numerous occasions. You know, he deals with 20 and 21 year old kids like me, you know, in the football ranks and, and he has to bring them through and he brings them through together and builds as a team and kind of somebody to look at you and just have so much faith in you. And like he said it to me, I was speaking to him last night, he said to me last night, you know, everyone's like, you need a wise jockey, you know, you need, you need this, you need that. You know, but he's like, I don't mind making the mistakes. I mean, you learn from them. And he said, the more big race experience you get, then you become the wise jockey. And you know, it was, it was something. I kind of just thought, 
wow. And, you know, ever since, I think I was my own worst enemy until I got my first winner for him, which came on Tepawala. And ever since then, it's just been no pressure. Relax into your, relax, enjoy your race, and there's no pressure on you. And just ride him as well as you can. And and see how you get on. This is Key, who's your, your boss. Yeah. Ammo racing, the purple and white, colours we see an awful lot now, developing a, a big string, and as you point out, his job is as a, as a football agent. So he's used to looking after young, young talented people, and, and he and you, hopefully, are going to grow together. I guess that's the, that's the idea. With the help of God, um, you know, you couldn't have asked for yourself to land in a job like this and be brought along and kind of not feel pressure on the big day you know it's just like we're out to see how good our horses are you make a mistake you know might get mad but we'll you know we'll come along together we'll build as a team together and you know he's been in the sport but not as a big owner and he really has invested the last two or three seasons into it and obviously with him building, and I'm building with him, and I'm building with, with trainers as well, and trainers' confidence, and it's it's really been a confidence barrier for me. You know, there's not been, how you say, the pressure that, you know, if I mess up, I'm going to get jocked off it. It's, the, it's, no, that whole thought in your head has gone out the window. It's, I'll ride this lad as good as I can, and if we're good enough, we'll be there with a chance and hopefully win. And if not, hopefully wasn't good enough. Did you come over to, to England when you were 16 as a confident 16-year-old? No. No? No, I mean, I had a great grounding pony racing. And I had a great grounding, you know, I was really happy I started in Ireland. You know, I know I only did three months on the old weather in Dundalk, but... That probably teaches you about 30 oh. years, doesn't it? Three months on the, on, on the Dundalk circuit. But it was something like, you know, I remember one day I was sandwiched in between Kevin Manning and the great Pat Smullen. And Pat was on my outside. And we was, we was locked in horns the whole way around. Pat didn't want to be tree wide. I was a 10-pound claimer. And I rubbed off him the whole way, both of them, the whole way around. And... It wasn't getting an inch, and it was kind of just... I came over here then, and I started to do that. If I got caught three wide, I didn't want to be three wide, but I knew the lad inside of me would have to know I didn't want to be three wide, and it was just little things like that, you know. So that taught you an enormous amount. So you came over and just... When you came to Richard Hannans, did you think, well, this is, this is, I'm here for the long haul, or was it a, more of a trial? I came in October for a trial. Um, and I was still in school, so it was during my holidays. So I couldn't just say, right, I'll sign on, you know, good luck with school. I went home, I finished off school at Christmas and said goodbye to the family and was on my way. It was, it wasn't the plan. The plan was to stay in school. You know, I wasn't very small as a young lad. Um, it was, you know, get your license, you know, tiddle away on the flat and see how you get on, but do the leave insert and then we'll see how your weight stands and we'll go from there. 
and then obviously, you know, being from, you know, a small part of Galway, the west of Ireland, you know, you know, we, I was brought up in the jumping game, and I knew no difference when such a big name like 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 Richard Hannon pops in and says, he said to my dad, Dad, David, I want to take your young lad as an apprentice. I just thought, you know, Dad, Dad was kind of taken by it, and he had to sit my mother down. It was it was getting it through to my mom. And once he got it through to my mom, I was, was on my way. And it's only you and your sister at home, and you were only 16. That must have been tough for your mum. It was. It was. The only benefit was, because we was, in, we was in Galway, when I used to ride out in places like Enda Bulger's and Willie Mullins's, I always had to go for a week or two. You know, I always had to go on a trip. I never went for a day, or I'd go in riding out in the morning. It was always a trip, so... I was always... I was kind of used to being away from home. Um, but it is, it is hard, like, especially with COVID, like, you know, it's been nearly a year and a bit now since I seen them last because of COVID and yeah. they went to Australia for the winter. So in one case, that is, that is hard, but, uh, you know, we're a close family. So I've always, you know, I'd always be on the phone to them always. So that kind of the way. The way social media works these days now, it's, it's very easy to stay in contact and, you know, you nearly feel like you're there, you know. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Uh, welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Maddie Playoff from the Racing Post is with me for the first time in a little while. Maddie, good to see you back. Yeah, I think the last time I was in here was January time, so so much oh, has changed were, since then. They were heady, halcyon days when we could have more than two people in the studio at once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, it's good to be back, so thanks for having me. And in a sense, even though we're entering lockdown on Thursday, the sport continuing, we do have to remember how lucky we are and Very. have been over yeah. the last few months. Yeah, indeed. Very, very lucky. Um, racing is such a... You know, Philip, for a lot of people who, you know, if they're struggling in this time, a lot of people are struggling and it's really there to keep us all going. We've got our livelihoods still on board. So I think we've got to really be grateful for, um, you know, racing during lockdown. Yeah, racing, uh, grateful for the sport's resilience and, and grateful for the owner's resilience for, for keeping Everyone putting going. the show on the road, well, yeah. exactly, exactly that. I mean, we'll start by having a look back on, on yesterday's action, but start with some, with some sad news which came through in the middle of yesterday afternoon, which was that the new one, who was a great favourite of so many people, had very sadly died uh, of colic. He'd not been retired all that long, and he was a great flag bearer for the Twists and Davises all through his, his career. He won just about half his starts. He was a 20-time winner. He won over a million pounds. What was it, do you think, about the horse that, that endeared people to him? I think just that he showed up and he gave his best every single time. Like you said, 20-time winner from 40 starts. And I kind of like that you saw Sam Twist and Davis almost grow up with him. And they, they were just one, weren't they? And he was a horse that always gave his best. And I think that's what characterised a lot of his wins, were that he wasn't necessarily always the classiest horse in the race, but he would always give 110%. And uh, there were some twists and turns to his career that made it really fascinating for us all to watch. So, um, yeah, it'd be sorely missed. Really sad. That. It's, it's sad that he never got that opportunity in that one champion hurdle that you really felt yeah. was, was his. Yeah. And he was nearly brought down and then came with a late rattle toward the end. And then it never quite happened. But yeah. it was almost his heroic failures that defined him as much as his victories. Exactly. And I think it just shows in a way that Cheltenham is not always the be-all and end-all. And a horse can have a wonderfully decorated career. You know, I mean, he was unbeaten at 
Haydock. And you remember he used to pull it out of the fire there every time people would be running to take him on and he'd just prove the doubters wrong. He won the Aintree hurdle, didn't he? A Christmas hurdle. So it's such a glittering CV. And I think we need to remember that sometimes, just sometimes Cheltenham's not everything. And who knows, maybe he would have won it if uh, what happened to Arconor sadly wouldn't have happened. Who knows? I suspect Gordon Elliott will tell you that Cheltenham is everything, but he'll also tell you that Leopardstown and Punchestown and Down Royal particularly are everything because he's had a wonderful couple of days in the north of Ireland. Five winners yesterday, including the Ladbrokes chase with the storyteller, but so much else to talk about, including some superstars. Um, Bally Adam coming through the ranks, Quixilios. Uh, Envoi Allen on Friday, and Gordon's on the line now. Gordon, good morning. Morning, Nick. I think I'd agree with you. Cheltenham is everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew you'd say that, but you're warming up quite nicely. I know you took... Uh, a, a ridiculous amount of horses to Down Royal over the weekend, and a ridiculous amount of very good ones. But would you would you count that as a pretty fair return over the over the Friday and Saturday? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, look, we like to start a lot of our horses off in Down Royal. Obviously, there's a lot of horses we didn't get to start off, which got to split them up. But um, we, I think we had a good weekend, so we're very happy. Just looking back at the Ladbrokes chase yesterday, it seems like a good place to start because you fielded a, a whole clutch of horses in here. I suppose Delta Work was the most high profile, presenting Percy having his first run for you there in the white cap. But it was to the outside, Keith Donoghue on the storyteller who came and won. Uh, what did you think of his chance going into the race? Uh, Keith was very sweet on him. Obviously, Keith's a big part of our team. He was very sweet on him. His fitness on his side. Um, um, listen, it's a great result for, for, for Pat and Joe Sloan. They're a big supporter of the yard and big supporters of Irish racing. Um, you know, so it's brilliant for them. But um, you know, I was very happy with Percy and Del to work out. Both of them, both of them had, had a blow. Uh, they'll come on from the runs. Um, it's the start of the season, so it's got to start somewhere, you know. Do you think it was just fitness that won it for the storyteller then? I mean, if they, if all these three horses met each other in six weeks' time, you know, hypothetically, I'm not saying they're going to, but hypothetically, would you expect the result to be completely different? It wouldn't shock me. Keith was very good on them. Um, you know, he's, he's as, I, as I always say, he's a massive part of our team. And, uh, you know, um, it, it was the perfect result, to be honest. OK, talk to me a little bit more about, about Keith. It seems to have been a very popular result. Just, just try and flesh out why. Yeah, I mean, he he struggles with his ways. He's very, 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 very dedicated. Um, he doesn't drink or smoke. I think he, he runs 80 to 100k a week to keep his weight down. Um, you know, he's in charge of all the schooling in our yard and, and all, all the work. Um, so, you know, it, it was well-deserved. Do we have to start thinking differently about the horse now? Do we still have to start thinking about the storyteller in terms of a genuine championship horse? I mean, he's just a horse of a lifetime, to be honest. Um, He's not the scorpiest over fences. Um, Keith has done very, very well with him. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if I brought him back over hurdles now, to be honest. I'm thinking of going back over hurdles at Christmas for the for the three mile uh, for the three mile grade one at Christmas. So could that mean he he'll have a staying hurdle campaign all the way through? Um, look, I mix and match. Um, he's a, he's a great horse to take a prize money, and we'll mix and match where we go. Okay, in terms of the in terms of the the big two in that race, Delta Work and presenting Percy, what sort of what sort of routes do you have mapped out for them? Uh, Delta Work, um, Jack is very, very happy. He always takes his first run. He said he'd blow uh, as the Dennis with, with, um, with presenting Percy. Um, a lot of my horses, even though they're running at the, week, run at the weekend, the lads say they're just taking a blow and they're going to come on from their run. So um, listen, it's, it's nice to hear that and we know there's improvement in the ball. Do you, mind, do you mind trying to keep them apart or are you quite happy just to let them run against each other where the opportunities allow? 
Um, I mean, look, if, if you look for years at Willie Mullins, Martin Pipe, you know, they were never afraid to run horses against each other, and it's not always the, the, the shortest and the price that wins. So if you're not in, you can't win. OK, who do, you think's the, who do you think at this stage of the season, out of all your staying chasers, is the horse that is likeliest to turn up for the Cheltenham Gold Cup, the shortest price? Yeah, it's a one. Still, still, you still have the faith in him? I do, yeah. OK, how, why so? Um, just listen, I don't know, that's why, that's why you train them. If you have that faith in them, you shouldn't be doing it, should you? <laughs> it's true enough. Uh, one or two of them might have surprised you a little. Battle over Doyen, I thought, was very, very good uh, yesterday. That must have pleased you to get him r right back on point. Uh, what did you make of him? What did you make of Sam Crow? Um, Battle over Doyen was very, very happy with him. I'd say we went too far with him last year. He probably doesn't really stay them longer distances. Um, so I was very, very happy to get Mark gave him a great ride. He said he just got tired going to the last as well. And, um, he, he, he went around a bit going to the last and needed to run. Um, Sam Crow, look at Sam Crow, uh, we all know Sam Crow, when, when he's good, he's good, and when he's when he's, when he's not, he's not. Um, he made a mistake in the third last. Um, I'd say Sam Crow's going to come on plenty of run as well, but uh, we'll go for the John Duck and we're both of them, and I'd say you won't see the, the best of Sam Crow until the sun is out. Why do you think that is? I don't know, to be honest. That's just the way he is. Well, Paul Nichols used to say a similar thing about about Denman, didn't he? He used to say that his coat, when his coat changed, he just sort of became a completely different horse. Yeah, Sam Boyce just he, he's done plenty of work and I've done as much work as I can with him, but he still looks heavy to me, you know. So he'll just keep he'll just keep him. Are you, uh, and is he a horse you think you can now run quite a bit during the season? Are you happy enough with him physically to to keep bashing away with him? Uh, I make the match where I go. To be honest, um, we'll probably go for the John Dork and the Kinlockeray and Torless and the Ryanair. That's my plan. Okay, that sounds like a good plan. Now I want to talk about all these Cheveley Park horses because they might well be cutting back on their flat racing string, but they're sure not cutting back on their jumpers. And you've got the most exciting ones, I think. We'll talk about Envoy Allen in a minute, but from from yesterday's clutch of Bally Adam and. Sir Gerhard and the horse who won the, the juvenile. Um, which of those gets your pulse racing quickest? Um, listen, to be honest, I'm very, very lucky. They've got a, a, a massive team for Chievely Park. Um, um, sorry, not massive, probably a very um, a small team, but a very. Um, I, I know what you're getting at, Gordon. It's ma it's yeah. ma it's a, listen, it's massive in standing, isn't it? In terms of the, yeah. just the, the, the raw talent that is running in those colours yeah. at the moment. We've got five or six horses for them, and, and they're all talented. But in fairness to Mr. and Mr. Thompson, um, they, they said when they're buying them, they didn't want big numbers. They just wanted to be selected for what they bought and buy the best. And they've done that, and it's paying off for them. So, so of those three yesterday, which one, which which one would get you out of bed earliest in the morning? All, all three of them. Mick. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, pick, I'll pick my favourite then. I thought. Um, Essa Gerhard was ridiculously impressive. How high could that horse go? Yeah, Jamie said it last week. We got it from last week that um, he said he could be our Cheltenham bumper horse. So we're going to go, go to Navin for, for the list of race, or the greater race next in December and uh, we'll we walk back from there. And I, how, I mean, I'm fascinated to know. I know these horses are costing a lot of money, but there's a lot of duds that cost a lot of money as well. I'm fascinated to know the processes by which these, these really, really special ones have all come all come at the same time. Who's who's finding them, sourcing them, getting them? Where are they coming from? 
uh, we work very hard at, at you know, um, trying to select the, the best horses. Um, you know, from obviously Jamie Codd is a big part of our team. Um, you know, uh, Ryan McGill, I guess Mouse or Ryan Eddie O'Leary, uh, myself, um, and, and a number of others. We, we we work hard at trying to get the best horses, and um, that's what we're trying to do. And I guess if someone like Jamie Codd's sitting on hundreds of point of points every season, then he's going to have a pretty good idea which one's the best ones. Well, it's a help, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, OK, so let's talk about Envoy Allen. Maybe I've saved the best till last. This round of jumping was, uh, was, was quite special. I has there ever been a time in this horse's career where he's ever found anything difficult? Uh, he's just he's a very special horse. We're very lucky to have him. Um, you know, he... he, he, he he, he, he's just an amazing horse. You know, he's very intelligent. You look at his ears the whole way through the race. He, he, he um, he's just very good, and we're very lucky to have. Him. I mean, I, so when when he when he first came to you, did he just always do everything easily? Everything be very easy to him. I, I suppose very easy, but doesn't want any fancy. But he, he just knows how to win. So, can you? Is he is he the sort of horse that you have to? Mind how much you work him because he's an enthusiast, or is he is he pretty laid back at, at home? Um, you know, he's probably a bit because he can be laid back, but he can get revved up as well. Uh, to be fair, Keith Dunham every, and he does does a wonderful job with him. Um, so all credit must go to Keith. He's um, he, he's uh, he's he, he's he's a massive part of his horse's career. I mean, is he is he the best you've had? Um, I won't answer that question. <laughs> okay, a little unfair, I grant you, because you've had some you've had some great favourites as well. But um, I, I I'll put my neck on the line and say I think he probably is. Uh, I won't let you go without just asking how how Tiger Roll's doing after his spin on the flat the other day. Yeah, he was he's he's, he's brilliant, Nick. Um, we'll probably go to Cheltenham for the cross country race on the next day. Um, it was great for young Sam Ewing to get a spin on him. Um, I suppose probably my fault they should have jumped him out of stalls before he ran, but. Gave away 10 or 15 minutes at the start, but he had a nice day out and he had a good blow and he came on from the run. But uh, ground is the big key to, Sam, or to Tiger Roll. He, he needs good ground. Okay, but he's all good. And so he'll go to that November cross country? I'll be well. Okay, great stuff. Look forward to seeing him there. Gordon, thanks so much. Great weekend for you. Thanks very much. Bye bye. No worries. I doubtless have forgotten all sorts. I'm going to get Maddie's view on that in a few moments' time, but not before I brought in Paul Nichols to talk about surname winning at Weatherby yesterday. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Nick. That was pretty special, wasn't it? His jumping was great yesterday. Yeah, it was. It was right back to his best. Um, you know, um, special day really to win, win left-handed three miles and, you know, coming back from that awful fall. So it was very good. So you agonised a bit in the middle of the week. We spoke about it. You were half thinking of going to Ascot, then Weatherby, then Ascot, then Weatherby again. What, what swung you Weatherby's way in the end? Well, to be honest with you, uh, you always got to cover your options. It was the weather forecast, as much as anything, was worrying me a little bit in the fact that it looked like at one stage, Weatherby was going to get an awful lot of rain. And if the ground was very, very testing there and the ground had been better asked, that would have been another option. You know, um, obviously, the, the race was a, the right race was a Charlie Hall with the weights and everything like that. But, you know, we, we were just wanting to do the right thing. And, of course, with the 48-hour declarations now, you have to declare plenty of time in advance. It's just making that decision right. So, all in all, we got it right. Uh, there, there was never any semblance that he seemed ill at ease going this way round, which sort of made me wonder why we thought that he was ever going to have a problem going left. But in fairness, you have campaigned him right-handed most of his career. Yeah, and that's just because of the right races. But you know, everybody has opinions. Whenever you get a good horse, whatever they do or win, they're either too highly rated, they won't go left, they won't go right. Everybody's got to not knock them but have an opinion about them. 
that was left going right-handed about three years ago when he was very unmanageable to train in lots of different ways. He used to grab hold the bridle and run off to the right and was always worried about other horses and things, all different things like that. Of late, he hasn't been doing any of that. He's a completely different character now. Um, and last year at Ascot, he was jumping left most of the way around there, so I was never in any, any doubt about it. Um, but until he does it, it, you know, it proves the point. So we're well happy with that, obviously. He seemed in a lovely rhythm. He went beautifully. He jumped really well. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the big question is, last season he did what he did to Altior first time up and then yeah. things didn't go quite so well for him. How much is freshness an advantage to him, do you think? It, it, it is good. He, he's quite a lean horse. He's not a big, strong horse. He can bang loads of work into. So, well, you do before he runs, but you can't sort of back that up too quickly. And so the idea, we were always determined that we were going to run him this weekend. And if he won, we could then have lots of time to go to Kempton. Um, he's A1 today, and now I've got lots of time to you know, give him a little freshen up and get him what I call mega fit for Boxing Day, which did, was able to happen in circumstances last year. The whole thing was wrong last year, and now we've just got a little bit more time, so that's why it was crucial to run yesterday. I thought it was a hard decision last year for Harry Cobden when he, when he had to pick mm. between this horse and, yeah. and Clando's Ovo. It's not a patch on what it might be this year if you get them both there in one piece. Well, yeah, obviously, um, Clan's going to hate it. It will be a difficult one. The only, the only thing is that at the end of the day, a surname in my book will be heading to Cheltenham, uh, and Clan de Zebo obviously won't be going to Cheltenham. So you have to factor that into it. And of course, we've got top of the game as well that is going to come back for the Labrador Trophy, which is another player. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. As I said to Harry yesterday, no point in thinking about decisions or thinking about it at the moment. It's so far away. You, you, get, you get that decision made at the time when you've got all the facts in front of you. So you say you know, surname now because he's gone left-handed, he'll, yeah. he'll end up <clears> at <throat> Cheltenham. Do, do yeah. you think this is a Gold Cup horse now, then? Yeah, obviously, I mean, horses that you know, win King George's off the back of Charlie Hawes or win Charlie Hawes, you know, do well in the Gold Cup. And the great thing about him, like Corto used to have, he's got, he's got cruising speed and he relaxes. So you can travel everywhere you like. You can just imagine him swinging down that hill and then running back up the other side. Well, sometimes those slow horses around Cheltenham struggle a bit because they're always flat out. Um, well, he's got plenty of boot. And obviously, he got the trip really well yesterday, won nicely. Why isn't he a Gold Cup horse? You've got to be thinking that now. Definitely, definitely. You know, and he's the, he's the highest-rated horse in, horse in training. Yeah. I, so, you've, got, you've got him and Frodo on for the Gold Cup now, top of the game yeah. potentially as well. Yeah. This is a sort of clutch of staying chasers, dare I say it, that we're, we, we were sort of used to you having 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, obviously with all those before, Denman, Neptune, uh, Cordo, they were great horses. And, you know, it's nice to have a, a nice team again. And it's very exciting times, really. And, and just in terms of all those others, have you started formulating where, where we might see, see them next? Frodon, for example, last weekend's winner. Is he going to have much action between now and, now and, and Christmas? I haven't spoke to Paul yet about that. Um, I mean, the obvious race would be go to the Many Clouds chase at Aintree over 3-1. That would suit him quite nicely, but I just... I've got a feeling Paul might like to run in the King George, so we'll have to have a chat about that. Top of the game's going to go for the Labrook at Newbury, and Clan is going to run um, in the Betfair chase. So that's the plan if it all goes right. Perfect. Paul, thanks so much for talking to us. OK, any time, Nick. Um, that was Paul Nichols, who was very excited about the victory of surname yesterday. And why not? I like that. Gold Cup. Yeah, no messing around. Because why would you mess around? Yeah, I know. And I just think that performance was so brilliant. Because I know Paul said everyone has an opinion on these things. And I was one of them. I was going, well, logically, he's, he's never won that way around. He's never won over that far. So maybe it's not for him. But I love when just, it just blows it out the water like that. And I thought... 
it was testament to Paul's talent as a trainer to transform him into this horse that we saw yesterday. But also Harry Cobden, he was just so brilliant on him. He just sits almost on top of the horse and lets him do all of the work. And in the last couple of fences, I was just enjoying watching these VTs, to be honest. But he, the horse is so effortless. And I think it's near to as a, per, a perfect performance as you could probably get. I love watching Harry Cobden, particularly over fences. He is so mm. still. I'm not saying he is the next Ruby Walsh, but he does ride the Paul Nichols horses in a manner reminiscent of the way that Ruby used to. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I spoke then about Paul and how he trains these horses, but we saw it at Ascot. There were some pictures going around at Ascot last year before he beat Altior. And again, look how fit he is. I mean, you look at the horses, you can see his ribs perfectly, his coat's great, and he just looks trained to the absolute minute. Um, and it's just fantastic to see when, you know, that's top-class racing. That's why we all watch the sport and love it. What's your inclination as to whether three and a quarter miles round Cheltenham would see him at his, at his optimum? I'm always a pessimist with these things and I always try and pick a big outsider in a market like that. And I, I don't know, I feel like with surname he's... I don't know why, but some horses seem to polarise the public a bit. Mm. And I'm, I don't know, I still have that sort of niggling doubt in the back of my head. Maybe he's not that dissimilar to Klandazobo, who was also very fast and wouldn't quite get up that hill. But as Paul says, he's just gone and, and won a Charlie Hall. So why not give it a go? And I think sometimes you have Gold Cups that are won by out-and-out -out stayers. And sometimes you have them mm. like Corto Star, who have that touch of class. And I think that was really interesting what he was saying about the cruising speed. Um, it's going to be a great sight, isn't it? If, if top of the game Frodon and that horse all go head to head in the Gold Cup. Yeah, for a big horse, his economy of effort with his jumping yesterday was what struck me, mm. albeit in a race that's not going to be nearly as deep as anything he's going to be tackling for the rest of the season. Always enjoy listening to Paul Nichols talking about how he trains these staying chasers as well and what he's going to do with them between now and the next run. Dan Skelton joins me on the line now to reflect on Roxana's brilliant victory over, over hurdles. Yes, he's good, quite a good trainer, that Paul Nichols, Dan, isn't he? Yeah, to be fair, he took him a while to get angry though, didn't it, Nick? <laughs> he was very good yesterday, wasn't he, that horse? Brilliant. I actually was talking to Paul beforehand and Paul was um, Paul was adamant he'd made the right call and was actually quietly looking forward to uh, silencing a few doubters and critics. And, uh, yeah, he was, uh, you know how Paul gets immediately after a race and... Um, yeah, he was, he was good. It was good sport. It's very good value. It's always good value. And um, you, you had a, a pretty impressive winner of your own yesterday, or two in, important winners of your own yesterday, but the very impressive one, Roxana, at, uh, at Weatherby. That, I'm not saying it came from nowhere, but it was a big step forward again, wasn't it? I think it was. And last year we got dragged down um, defending the, the, the mayor's crown, which obviously, why wouldn't you? Um, and it turned into a very good race in the end. And it's hard to defend your crown, you know, at Cheltenham. And um, I was really looking forward to going to Aintree over three miles. But last year, you've got to remember, in the grade twos and, and the conditions races, she was carrying a class one penalty. But yesterday, because she hasn't won for a year, she didn't get the penalty. So, um, you know, the, the door really opened up for her. But having said that, you'd given her an extra six pounds yesterday. She'd have, she'd have won still. So um, I think maybe just having her ready a little earlier... And the ground of the Weatherby suited her perfectly. Three miles is clearly her best trip, um, if you can find the right race. Um, and it all just come together fantastically. Um, I think Stevie Wonder said, isn't she lovely? <laughs> she, she is. Um, 
Isn't she wonderful? Uh, could she Isn't be... She wonderful? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we'll stop, we'll stop there. Uh, how do you see the rest of the campaign playing out, uh, Dan? I think, um, well, to be honest with you, on Monday she's going back to her owner, Sarah, uh, for 10 days because they do a great job with her pre-season. She, she, um, she is a little bit moody at times and um, if you can keep her fresh and, 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 and sweet, it really suits her. And she'll go back to Sarah's for 10 days and then we'll, we'll aim her for the, for the long walk. I mean, just, you know, it feels like this could be her last season. If it's not, there's only one more. She's won a grade one. She's won some grade twos. You know, you've got to be a little bit ambitious, like Paul said, with, with surname. Why not go for a Gold Cup? Like with her, why not go for a long walk? You can protect them and, and, and chip them in in the shallowest waters you can find, or you can be brave and, 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 and shoot for the stars. And why not shoot for the stars with her? Yeah, and clearly it was a, a great day for the, for the team yesterday. Um, I think you were happy. It's quite hard to tell. I was happy. <laughs> um, um, it's great, like with Roxani, there's, there's always a little bit of, oh, she only won that race at Cheltenham because Benny de Dieu fell. Um, you know, she, she's not the best, or she's not the best mare around. Um, there's, there's always that chat, and, and I know it frustrates Sarah, um, who owns her a bit. And I said, look, you know, she's a great horse in her own right, and, and her day will come. And I was delighted yesterday that it came for the mare. Um, you know, she, she proved that, you know, given her right uh, conditions, she can be really, really good. And and it was it was perfect, and obviously another lady excelled down at Ascot. Yeah. When Bridget won on a mule of gold. I know. I was going to. Well, that was going to be my next question. Which, which horse received the best ride from anyone in your stable yesterday? I don't think uh, Harry would mind saying it was probably a mule of gold. No, I think Harry'd have to have to accept that um, perhaps Roxana had a few pound in hand, whereas a mule of gold needed a special ride. But um, it was great. A mule, like to be fair to him, he's. He's been a very slow maturer. He's one of those horses at home who acts very childish. Is, is almost almost surprised, you know, to be doing the same thing he did the day before. Uh, he's got that childishness about him, but he's really grown up these last two runs. I don't know why all of a sudden the pennies dropped, but um, he's really grown up these last two two runs. And um, it was a polished performance by horse and rider, and that you know both had to be determined from the back of the lap. Um, you know, and uh, I think they were both racing off the same mark. So, you know, it was it was sort of, you know, pretty nip and tuck the whole way. And I'm just yeah delighted for Bridge to to get a to get a good day as well because you know she rides she rides very very well. I don't need to tell you that. No, no, it's been established now for several seasons. Another great day for you, Dan. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. Uh, Chris Wright has had an amazing career as a pioneer in the music industry. He founded Chrysalis Records, which uh, brought some of the biggest names in pop music to prominence in the 60s and 70s, and indeed has done in the last couple of decades as well. He's been a, a great philanthropist. He's been owner of Wasps Rugby Club, Queen's Park Rangers, and has ploughed an enormous amount of heart, soul, not to mention investment into the sport of horse racing as well, which is one of his, his great loves. He's had some terrific horses, starting with the crime of passion, but going through the Guineas winners, culture, vulture, uh, involvement in the sadly ill-fated but very brilliant Cresselium, and latterly, wonderful tonight, the winner of the Kipco Phillies and Mares on British Champions Day, not to mention a Group 1 on Arc Weekend as well. It's my great pleasure to welcome, and, and of course I haven't mentioned his great work with the Racehorse Owners Association as well. It's my great pleasure to welcome um, Chris Wright to the show. Uh, Chris, very good morning to you. 
Morning, Nick. Always good to talk to you. Absolutely. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago after wonderful tonight's victory in the, uh, in the, in the Kipco race. We'll start with her because she's the latest great triumph for your, for your ownership and not vastly expensive either. How's she getting on? Well, I spoke to the trainer this week about where, what we're going to do with her for the winter and where she's going to be turned out. And he told me he, he was trying very hard to get her to relax, but there was still a lion inside her body. And uh, for that reason, I assume she's still doing very well, but she's not quite ready to go and have a holiday, which doesn't mean to say she's going to be doing any more work, but uh, that's, what, that's the condition she's in. You're the perfect person to ask, really, because you weren't able to be there on, on Champions Day at Ascot. How much did that diminish from your enjoyment of it, if at all? Uh, none at all, really. Uh, it, it couldn't have been more enjoyable if I'd been there than, than not being there. And it also couldn't have been more stressful if, if I'd been there. <clears throat> the only thing I did think is when the trophy eventually arrived here, I did think it would have been absolutely marvellous to have been stood on that little rostrum at Ascot to have picked up the trophy in person. That's probably the thing I miss more than anything uh, in a race like that. But no, I mean, watching it here uh, in Gloucestershire, it was it was fantastic. I mean, I've, I've got used to it and um, it doesn't impair the excitement really at all. I, I was fascinated. I was thinking to myself last night, I, I wonder what it is that, 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 some, that, a, that a pursuit or an endeavour needs to have about it to get Chris Wright interested in it. Because obviously the music industry, particularly in the 60s and 70s, was you know, famously high-octane, exciting, you know, adrenaline-fuelled. <clears throat> You've been involved in, in sport as well, in rugby and in football. Does it, does it have to be something that gets your blood pumping? Are you someone who is more attracted by something that'll get you going rather than something that'll chill you out? Well, I guess so, really. It's interesting you should say that. And I, I have said uh, before that there are similarities, in a way, between racing and uh, the music business. And, you know, my career hasn't in, been entirely in the music business, but that's where I started. But if you think back to, to, you know, those days in the 60s and 70s, your life revolved around, firstly, signing groups that you invested an awful lot of money into and, you know, frankly, most of them don't make it. And it's the ones that do make it that pay for the ones that don't make it. And so you're, you're particularly expectant and enthusiastic about one that does look like it will make it. And, uh, you know, you think back to those days and you're waiting for the charts to come in on a, you know, whenever it was Sunday night in those days. Are you going to be number one? Aren't you going to be number one? Is, you know, what's the sales like? And it's, you know, there's a lot of similarities with horses. You, you know, you buy horses and you breed horses, you put them into training. You don't know that they're going to turn out as well as you'd like. Uh, and clearly most of them don't. And most of the time it's disappointment, as indeed it is in the music business. But it's the ones that really do make it, you know, to the top that really do get your, your you know, your blood really going. That's that's big similarity in a way. It's very different now because we don't, you know, culturally as a, as a, as a nation, we don't obsess over who's number one on a, on a Sunday night like, like, you know, we did in our... In our, in our childhood, Chris, I, I'm fascinated to know no. what the feeling was like when you first found out that one of your one of your acts was was number one. Well, I guess a bit like a bit like when you find out that Wonderful Tonight's passed the post first in the champion fillies and mares. I mean, it's uh, 
you know, it's a huge celebration. When we started the company back in 67, I think we, we did talk, my ex-partner and I, about what would we do? What, how will we celebrate, you know, with our first number one? And, you know, you think about it. What would you do? It's a bit like, what would I do if I won the derby? You know, where would I go? What would, and, you know, so it's very similar. But, of course, I mean, right now, I wouldn't know what was number one or what I wouldn't be able to name you one record in the top 20 right now. But, I mean, that's... Uh, Unfortunately, the case, probably the case with people that work in the industry as well, to some extent. But I guess, you know, at the time, as you say, and as you've said in interviews before, you have to be totally immersed in it to, to be successful. Where did your, where did your love of, of music and promoting music come from? Well, I mean, I grew up on a farm in Lincolnshire and, uh, you know, frankly, there wasn't much music there. I wasn't one of those kids that grew up in North London or somewhere and, you know, went to went to gigs from the age of 13 or 14. I mean, that was that wasn't the world, my world. I was a farmer's son and I went to Manchester University and somehow or other I, I got elected to the student council and somehow I ended up with the job of running all the all the entertainment. And it was at that point in time when things were beginning to move from, you know, old dance bands and maybe a little bit of jazz to what was happening just along the the, uh, the road in Liverpool and, and soon into Manchester with the Beatles and all of the things emanating out of that era. And it was incredibly exciting. And I guess because I knew so little about it, I, I got, you know, completely immersed in it. And then I, I ran into a chap from London who had had that other kind of uh, upbringing. He'd been involved with people working at, at uh, places like Eel Pie Island and so forth. And uh, he came up with the idea that we should run a one, once a night uh, club for, for students in an old working man's club, uh, you know, putting on, you know, really good music, blues groups and so forth. And we started doing that, he and I, and it developed into something and, and I carried on doing the, the running all the entertainment at the university and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly, you know, being a student in my finals, I was ended up being one of the biggest promoters in the country just by accident. I mean, not for myself on the whole, but, you know, that's how I got involved in it in the first place. What, what was the big break? Who was the big act that really kicked the company off? Well, um, you know, you'd have to say it was 10 years after uh, Sadly, a lot of people probably will say 10 Years Who, but no, it was a group called 10 Years After, who uh, were in London at the time. They, they were a group from Nottingham. They were really good musicians, but they were backing a group called the Ivy League, uh, who some of you might remember, uh, who actually had a brief period when San Francisco took off and they changed their name to the Flowerpot Men. And uh, I won't try and repeat some of their hits, but, you know, they had quite a few hits. They were their backing group, but they wanted to be a serious group. And, and they heard about my club in Manchester and they wanted to come and play. And they almost, they, I said, I only pay £15 a night. It won't even pay for your petrol. And they said, we don't care. We want to come and play for you. And they came and played for us. And uh, my partner, the, the one with the more experience of this kind of thing, said, this group's fantastic, you should sign them up for management. And so I did. And uh, we changed their name to 10 years after. I got them a residency at the Marquee Club in London, which was about the most happening thing you could do. And uh, they started taking off. And then I moved to I moved to London. And then, uh, you know, I got them a record deal. And I got them to America when no one could get English groups to America. And we went off in the summer of uh, 68 to 
to do a tour of America, playing the Fillmore in San Francisco and the Fillmore in New York and all the big uh, venues. And that's really put us on the map big time because we were doing things that people didn't think two college kids in their early 20s would be able to do. And then, I mean, then you had some some wonderful bands, Jethro Tull and Blondie and Ultravox and Spandau Ballet, and the list goes well, on. Well, Jethro Tull came, yeah, Jethro Tull came came pretty close behind because they were a group I knew from from Manchester. They were called the John Evans Band from Blackpool. Although Ian Ian Anderson, the singer, is actually Scottish, but they came from Blackpool. And the guy that was managing them had worked with me in Manchester. He was a really good guy. And uh, he, I learned a lot from him about how to deal with artists. And, and uh, he came to see me in, in London and said, you know, this group, the John Evans Band I'm managing, I've been seeing what, how well you've been doing with 10 years after. And I, I really want you to take over my group. And, um, you know, I said, I can't do that, Don. I can't, you know, it's not fair. He said, no, he said, because you, 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 uh, they, they deserve someone who can do a lot better for them. And um, I I, we said OK, and we took them over and changed their name to Jethro Tull, and they became the second group that followed in the footsteps of 10 years after and, and eventually superseded them. And uh, that, that, you know, I mean, t if 10 years after put us on the map, then Jethro Tull, like, may, you know, like en enhanced the whole thing. So you as a, you as a, a manager, uh, as a promoter, do you, do you have to like the music or do you just have to think that somebody else is going to like it where's the balance i mean you know look i mean you're going back to those days i would never sign anybody i in those days i didn't like i you know it was as simple as that you know i didn't i didn't i didn't think oh that i don't really like them but i think they can be commercial i think as the company developed and we became a big record company there were times when we started thinking along the lines of, well, we don't really like them, but they could be really big. But in all honesty, uh, on the very few occasions that we did do that, we completely fell on our, fell flat on our face because we didn't really know what we were doing. We, we knew the music we liked and we signed people that, that fell into that category. And I remember even to the point of when I went to see the Sex Pistols and we thought about signing the Sex Pistols and we nearly signed them two or three times, but the first time, I went back to my fl my flat and I thought, you know what? I don't really want a, 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 an act on the label that I don't want to go and see in concert, or I don't feel comfortable taking my friends to see in concert. And that was the first time we we turned down the Sex Pistols. Uh, we it, we only signed groups we liked. That was it. And you didn't have you didn't have too many problems uh, making making Blondie absolutely huge both sides of the Atlantic. Though plenty of people told you you would. Well, yes. I mean, actually, I'm, you know, I must give my, my ex-partner the credit for signing Blondie because he was living in the States at the time and he found, you know, he saw Blondie. They were signed to another record label uh, that was actually a pop label. It wasn't the right label for them. Uh, my ex-partner wanted to sign them and we actually paid a transfer fee. It wasn't the first time it's ever happened, but it was, but it happens very, very, very rarely. And it was a massive transfer fee at the time. I think it was like $650,000 to buy their contract with, of course, the group's approval because the group wanted to be with us. But they were a, they were a slightly punky group at, at the time. They were always a bit of a punk, punky type of group, although pretty pop punk. punk. And, um, 
and and coming out of that New York scene. But they didn't. The really the market in America wasn't right for Blondie at the time. And actually, we broke Blondie first of all in Australia, then in Holland before we before they came to England, and then they exploded in England. And then it was a a bit later with the next album that they really made it in America and and therefore all over the world. So it was quite a, a quite a complicated campaign breaking Blondie. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel, Dubai.